of romanticism uh, yesterday where lunacy or madness becomes uh, a kind of important uh, kind of state of being for the romantic because it's fighting against the establishment, it's fighting against uh, rationality, right? Uh, so you talk about the rational and then you talk about the insane or the mad, right? And we're talking about the genius, which is a pet theory of the romantics and genius and madness, as Dryden says, are very close alike, right? And now uh, Kappa is one of the people who's moved from lunacy back to a ordinary kind of functionality, right? Yeah, so a lunacy might be a high state of being, right? A very intelligent person or a genius gets lunatic and to return to the ordinary humdrum kind of situation in the world is not very easy, right? Uh, yeah. Coolridge, to an idler like myself, to write and receive letters are both very pleasant. But I wish not to break it upon your valuable time to expecting to hear very frequently from you, right? Now he says, I'm an idler, right? Now you have a lot of people who are talking about in praise of idleness, like Bertrand Russell, in a later date, Robert Louis Stevenson, right? And the idea of idleness is extremely important, right? In fact, Bertrand Russell, in on education is talking about university teachers right and it's not the Gujarat model of teaching that he's talking about which is try to make the teachers do all the work possible and in the spare time make them do examination work and make them do bureaucratic work and that's what our universities have decayed to today right yeah uh, a university teacher according to Bertrand Russell must have enough time to think and to read and to, to a lot of free time to think about things, right? Yeah, and that's why our universities have decayed because the teachers are thought of as bureaucrats, okay? Or as uh, Krishna Kumar says in the Oxford Encyclopedia of uh, Handbook of Education, right? Uh, Krishna Kumar, who's still alive and still writes a lot of very interesting articles in the newspaper, right? And he's an educationist. He is talking about how in the colonial system, the teacher uh, is reduced to a bureaucrat or the lowest rung of the bureaucracy, right? Yeah, and that's exactly why, oh, maybe one of the reasons why teachers are more, what you call, uh, bureaucrats rather than academics, yeah? Uh, Brinda, do you have a problem? You've written something in the chat box, right? Uh, we'll Actually, sir, I'm kind of lost. I don't know on what page number we are at. And I try to find we have it, only sorry. one page. We have only one page. Yeah, yeah. We have only two pages: the front page and the back page. Have you got the text? Or yes, I? I have. Actually, it's a 44 pages PDF. Sir, I was confused. No, it's not a 40 page. I don't know about that. But the letter to Coldridge. Okay. Yeah. Letter to Coldridge. I don't know where okay, it uh, figures, uh, figures on your PDF. Yeah, right. I haven't sent the video. Yeah, it's to Coldridge. The title of the PDF that chocolate group is the best letters of Charles Lamb. Oh, okay, I I don't know about that. Yeah, so find uh, a letter to Coldridge, right? Yeah. But the, uh, 
about us is we still cannot get out of caste right and uh, at least let's be honest about it that we are stuck by that for good or ill right yeah and i don't see any virtue in it but some people think that there's a virtue 
in the caste system, right? In fact, there's a French author uh, uh, who's talking about India, and he says uh, the Brahmin community has to be praised for keeping the culture going, right? So be that as it may, right? I, as a modern Indian, cannot fall into this kind of a system, right? Yeah, and I, of course, I can't agree with the government saying that uh, the farmers are uh, don't know their heads or they don't know their minds. Uh, they're misinformed, right? Women are misinformed. Women don't, don't have rights or women don't have uh, brains or intellect to decide for themselves, right? Yeah. So we're talking about madness, right? And when we talk about madness, we fall into that category of not knowing to decide, right? Yeah. And uh, and of course, the if you read Foucault's Madness and Civilization, and you look at the systems, uh, who actually says that somebody is mad? Not a men, uh, not a doctor, but uh, a judge certifies the madness, right? Yeah. And of course, I had a brother who is a lawyer, and uh, he was telling me about a case where uh, a, a lawyer uh, puts up a person. Because if you're mad or if you're insane, right, then you you uh, can't fall under the law, right? Yeah. So uh, this person was put, and of course, it, it was a wicked lawyer and a wicked uh, person, right? Yeah. Who had harassed his wife or something or the other. I don't remember the case. But what was interesting is he was tutored by the lawyer. When the judge asked uh, uh, your name, right, say, what's your name? He said, Bijli. Right? Where do you stay? In the power house, right? Yeah. So that kind of uh, uh, kind of logic, right, is used, and then the judge says, "Well, this man is absolutely nuts, right? And you you can't even have you can't even uh, proceed against him in court, right? Uh, the same thing happens to a very important Marxist critic called uh, Althusa, right? Who kills his wife, right? Uh, according to some." Uh, people, he might have been a somnambulist, and he was not aware that he killed his wife. Okay, he was stroking her throat, and uh, he killed her. When he realized it, he went and reported to the uh, the hospital uh, or the then for whatever the health uh, uh, unit was on his uh, on his university campus, which is uh, a call Namala, right? Yeah, the French university. And he was interned. By the time the police came, he had broken down totally, right? And they couldn't find, uh, they couldn't be, he couldn't be taken to jail, right? He couldn't even have a case filed against him, but he was put in a mental hospital for a long, long time, right? And what is very honest about him is when he recovered, he asked people to give him news clippings and all the things that have happened to him when he was in the mental asylum, right? Yeah. And of course, he's a very, very important writer. He's written on uh, an author autobiography, which you might like to read, which is called A Moment. Uh, yeah, The Moment Lasts Forever, right? If you want it, it's in Professor Carr's library, which is just behind the station, which is called FCT. That's where I read it. So maybe you can become a member and you can join the FCT and you can read the text, right? Uh, extremely interesting ways of writing an autobiography, right? Uh, yeah. Now, uh, when we're talking about lunacy, and we're talking about sanity, right? What happens uh, in lunacy and sanity? We talked about Hamlet. We talk about uh, the idea of uh, 
the idea of madness and the idea of functionality. So is madness the absence of functionality? That's a quite a question that this letter is positive, right? Because what we have over here is when we're talking about madness, we're talking about the idea of him suddenly becoming functional and uh, getting down to the publication, etc. Right? And then he says, school bridge to an idler like myself to write and receive letters are both very pleasant. But I wish not to break upon your valuable time by expecting to hear very frequently from you. Right? Yeah? Now you have the same kind of thing which is happening in Gandhi's letter to Tolstoy. Right? The whole kind of respect. And these are two people from two different cultures. Right? Yeah, Coolridge, Alam is writing to Coolridge from within the English culture or uh, the British culture, if you like. Right? Yeah, and uh, Gandhi is writing to Tolstoy across cultures, right? From being a person who's traveled uh, from his own culture to the culture of Africa, to the culture of England, to the culture of Africa, and back again to England to dialogue with the colonial masters, right? Yeah? So uh, that's interesting that these two people in different letters are very humble about their position and saying, well, it's not right for me to take your time, right? Yeah, so that's a position. Uh, and of course, the idea of calling himself an idler, I don't know if he knew that Coleridge uh, was a drug addict, right? Not by his own design, not by choice, but by uh, having uh, opium prescribed to him as a remedy for his stomach ailment, and then he becomes an, an addict of opium, right? And if you go to uh, Dovecot, that's a place where, uh, that's in North England, right, in the Lake District, right? If you go there, you will uh, see the, the little scales where Coolridge weighed his opium and took his opium shot, right? That's still preserved. And uh, that's an interesting house to see because uh, Wordsworth la uh, later lives in that house, right? And there's a little room where the 13 children of Wordsworth uh, were under the house flows the river Wye, right? So you can uh, go and see it and you wonder what the poor children did over there and did they feel cold or not because the river is passing under the house, okay? And it's cold, right? So uh, that's there, but there were 13 of them huddled in the room, so I thought, I think that they might have got some warmth out of that, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, the idea of idleness is again an important idea because the idea of idleness means there's place for the imagination, right? So when you're idle, you can imagine more things than you normally do when you're occupied, right? Yeah. So in our systems of university and the idea of work, right? Uh, even if you're not uh, a university teacher. Right? You should have enough of time to think and to dream. Right? Of course, the university teachers have disgraced themselves by being more interested in share business and real estate right? and other kinds of uh, pastimes that they have rather than studying and reading. Right? And that's one of the reasons. Uh, it's not only because of the political systems that we have and the, uh, all the kind of political powers that we have that the universities have decayed, right? but it's also because the teachers themselves don't want to read and study, and that's a horrible thing, right? Yeah, and uh, when it goes down to the schools, that becomes even worse because we are talking about the romantics who talk about development of child children's minds, right? And in many parts of the world, the people.
people who teach at school level have got a PhD, right? Yeah. And in India, what happens is you don't have that kind of understanding is not even there, right? I, re I remember talking to a friend of mine who, who was doing a BA. She's still a friend of mine, uh, and she's taught all her life in the school that I studied in, right? Because she was not my teacher, she was a friend, right? Uh, so uh, when she was doing a BA, she said, "Well, if a teacher is too educated, they won't be able to teach in the school." Right? And I, I started thinking about that and I said, well, I met some uh, Osho people. They were not called Osho then, they were called Rajneesh, right? And my mother brought, brought them over for uh, lunch because we were learning German and they were Germans, right? Yeah. And one of them said, well, we've done a PhD but we teach in school, right? Yeah. And that's something interesting, right? Because when you see uh, that the people who are actually talking about working in education and in psychology are the people who are working in schools. We go back to the tradition of what's with the Coolridge and the Romantics, right? Because our system of education is romantic, right? And the idea of the imagination is something that Wordsworth and Coolridge talk about in a big way, right? So when he calls himself an idler, right? It's that uh, whether consciously or not consciously, he's actually talking towards uh, Coolridge and saying, well, idleness is a good thing, right? Yeah, idleness is a good thing because it gives you space or you break with the space that you are uh, confined to and go out of the space that you're confined in, right? And you can imagine and think everything else, right? In fact, uh, next year you'll have an extract from a speech by uh, J.K. Rowling, right? And she's talking about what happens when you fight against the government. Right? Of course, I told the students just now that in India, if you fight against the government and imagine yourself in the hat, in, uh, in the in the positions of people who are poorer than you and more oppressed, right? You land in jail and you'll be called an urban laxer, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what she's saying. When uh, please imagine, look and use your imagination, right? And uh, she's a uh, she's thought of as a children's writer, so uh, I don't want to spoil it for next year. You can read it when you come there, right? Yeah. But what is interesting and what is important is the idea of idleness itself and the idea of the imagination is something that's very, very important. And when Lamb is talking about this, he's talking about in praise of idleness, uh, which is uh, later perhaps, but he's also saying, well, I'm not one of the people who go by the mechanical way of living, right? And uh, I'm a practical person who goes from one practicality to another practicality and gets nowhere, right? And I need space to think, and I need space to feel, and I need imagination to think about other people and their situations, right? Yeah, and of course, uh, we have a very sensitive person who actually lives with his murderous sister called Mary uh, Lapp, right? Yeah, so that's the letter that we're reading, yeah? Uh, reserve that obligation uh, for moments of lassitude, uh, where uh, lassitude, right? Lassitude, when you have nothing else to do, for a local restive, and all your idle propensities, of course, have given way to the duties of providing for a family, right? Yeah. So he's saying, well, when you don't have anything to do, right, and you're lying down, right. Uh, that's very funny, right? Uh, you've actually had family, right? 
and you have to look after the family, which is a practical job, right? And if you talk about Wordsworth's poem, which is written in the uh, uh, in the lyrical ballads, right? And uh, the daffodils, right? The last verse of it goes to, when oft upon my couch I lie, okay? When oft upon my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon the inner eye, which is the bliss of solitude, right? Yeah. So the idea of imagination and how when you're idle, you can take things up from your imagination. And this is what Wordsworth is writing in his, uh, in his preface to the lyrical ballads, right? How does the imagination work? Yeah. When I'm sitting down, imagination can come to me and I can take a piece of my imagination from here to there and pluck it off like a fruit using the organic metaphor that everything or the idea of uh, the self being a, a kind of an organic plant, right? So, uh, yeah, reserve that obligation for the moments of las uh, lassitude when you have nothing else to do for your loco restive and your idle propensities, of course, have given way to the duties of providing for a family, right? So he's saying, well, you're a poet, you're an idler, right? But you've also to provide for your family. That's your kind of moral duty, right? The mail is come in, but no parcel, yet this Tuesday. Farewell, then till tomorrow. For a niche and a nook, I must leave for criticisms. By the way, I hope you do not send your own copy of Joan of Arc. I will, in that case, return it immediately, right? Now, Joan of Arc uh, uh, is perhaps a romantic German writer called Schiller, right? Yeah, Frederick Schiller, who is talking about Joan of Arc, and he writes Joan of Arc from a romantic point of view, right? Yeah, so you have uh, many people can take the same subject and or the same story and can adapt it to different uh, culture, times in history and culture with different tense, trends of how you read it, right? So Joan of Arc is the story of this woman uh, who was burned as a witch, right, by the Catholic Church at the stake, right? Yeah, and of course that was by what you call an Inquisition court, right? And after about 500 and odd years, she's made into a saint by the same, the very same Catholic Church, right? And they're begging forgiveness of what the Pope in the past, or the Inquisition court in the past has done, right? Yeah, and of course you have Schiller, who's writing uh, a romantic St. Joan of Arc, right? Yeah, and uh, Bernard Shaw in uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, wrote a play again about Joan of Arc, right? Yeah, and uh, Bertolt Brecht, who's a Marxist uh, playwright, writes Saint Joan of the Stockyards. Uh, I've not read that, right? Yeah, so maybe uh, that may be a good idea to look at it from different points of view, right? Yeah, and different ages. Shaw's Joan of Arc is taking all the modern ideas of the nation and the nation state and is putting that, those ideas into Joan's uh, mouth, right, in the play, right? And uh, she's talking about nation and the British nation and all those kind of things and all the, the priests and uh, the people are standing in judgment of her, right? Uh, don't know what she's talking about. They said, what? Nation? Right? And then, uh, like you call somebody an urban axle or an anti-national, she's talking about the nation and the nation is an idea which hasn't even existed 
in the actual historical time period of Joan of Arc, right? So you might like to look at the different ways you treat a similar subject, right? Uh, like we talked about the Oedipus myth in Greek, uh, in Greek mythology, in Greek drama, in Roman drama, and in French drama, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, and uh, in the Romantic world, I think it is. Uh, uh, yeah, it is Shelley who writes Oedipus, the Swollen Footed. I've not read that play, but I have it, right? Uh, yeah, so you might like to look at that, right? So you you have a romantic kind of take on it, right? Or you have uh, the story of Dr. Faustus written by, uh, from a German chapbook, which Marlowe takes and writes as, uh, yeah, the tragical history of Dr. Faustus, right? Yeah, and that's one. And his is a renaissance, Faustus. Well, Faustus is a great scholar, etc., etc. Yeah, not that Goethe is not a scholar, but Goethe's Faustus is a romantic Faust, right? Yeah, and uh, the devil or Mephistopheles is a romantic kind of good hearted fool, right? So, there are the two different ways, or many different ways, in each age, thinks about uh, a similar kind of myth, right? Uh, you have had this story called the many Ramayans, right? Yeah, so you have people talking about different kinds of Ramayans, right? And you have, uh, maybe you can see this, it's called Sita Sings the Blues, right? And it's about the Ramayana, and it's about the narrative of the Ramayana and how does an Indian American respond to the Ramayana, uh, and they put blues music to it, and they've done a lot of very interesting things, uh, and it ties up with the whole Indian tradition of the Ram Leela and all those kind of things, right? Yeah. So, uh, which tradition does it, does it tie up with, right? Yeah. So, uh, we are a country with a lot of traditions, right? And very, very old traditions too, right? And of course, if we go back to some of them, we'll wonder what's going on in India today, right? Uh, with that, I won't say anything else, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so he's talking about don't send your cop own copy of St. John of Arc. Uh, I will, in that case, return it immediately. Yeah, if you have, if uh, I hope you do not send your own copy of Saint John of Arc, I'll return it immediately. Your parcel has come. You have been lavish of your presence, right? Now the question is: Does he write the letter in one day, or does he write the letter in two or three days, right? Now that's a question of how do you write a letter, right? Yeah, you might write a letter uh, in one day, right? You might write a letter and change it, right? Okay, and then, uh, yeah, we, we are used to that, right? So today, of course, we are probably more used to it because we have our letters uh, on the computer, right? Yeah, so you have a document and you preserve your letter as a document and you change it, right? And if you have to send it to different people, you change it for each one of them. All those things we know, right? And the idea of the letter, of course, is He's talking about uh, this idea of Joan of Arc, right? And most probably, it's Schiller's Joan of Arc, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wordsworth's poem, I've had it through, not without detail. Poor love. My heart almost accuses me for the light manner I lately spoke of him, not dreaming of his death. My heart bleeds for your accumulated troubles, right? Yeah. I don't know who's level, right? But he's probably a poet, right? My heart beats for your accumulated troubles. God send you thought them 
uh, with patience. I conjure your dream, not that I even think of being repaid. The very world is calling to the ears, right? Yeah. And he's saying, uh, I conjure your dream, not that I will ever think of being repaid, right? Now the conjurer and the idea of magic is something that's coming up. And the idea of dreams and magic and imagination is what we're talking about, right? And we're talking about the idea of Kubla Khan and the vision has disappeared and I can't write. Perhaps that's what Lam is talking about, but he's talking about the idea of dreaming and the idea of conjuring up a dream, right? When we compose and when we imagine, how is our imagination different from a dream world, right? If all of you like, uh, see this movie called Dodeska Den, right? Uh, yeah, uh, Kurosawa's movie, right? One of the few movies of his which is in color, right? Yeah, you can see it because it's actually talking about you actually have a character over there who is actually doing all this kind of imaginative work, right? And how do you uh, imagine, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and I will, that I will ever think of being repaid, that would, that very word is calling to the ears, right? Yeah, and he's saying that you're going to be repay me, that hurts my ears. The whole idea of the business transaction is something that I want to get out of, right? Yeah, so actually, they're actually talking about a world which has already become capitalistic and with capitalism, you're talking about giving and receiving. Not that it is not with capitalism also, right? Because the idea of the gift, right? If any of you like, read Marcel Moss, the gift, right? It's an anthropologist idea of how gifts are given, how gifts are taken, etc. Right? Uh, yeah, and it's quite easily available today, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, my heart bleeds for your accumulated troubles. God send them with patience. I conjure your dreams. Not that I will ever think of being repaid. The very word is calling to my ears. I have read all your religious musings with an uninterrupted feeling of profound admiration. Right? Yeah, we talked about the pantheism of Wordsworth and Coolidge and the Romantics. Right? They believe in all the gods. Right? And every form of religion. Right? Yeah? Uh, and that's exactly where you have uh, the idea of Islam taken up by the Romantics by a novelist like Walter Scott. Right? And he's talking about uh, the Islamic people being far superior to uh, the Christians, right? So you can read uh, Ivanhoe and Quentin Durward and all those kind of things, which uh, is a romantic uh, historical uh, novelist, and he's uh, in the league of Wordsworth and Coolidge, right? In fact, he surpasses uh, Wordsworth and Coolidge as a poet, right? Yeah, and he becomes very important at their own time, and uh, the question is. You might have read the poem uh, uh, Lochinvar, right? Yeah, uh, which is uh, something that we normally study in school, right? Uh, yeah, so that's by Walter Scott. Uh, yeah. Uh, you must safely rest your fame on it. The best remaining things are what I have before read. They lose nothing by my recollection of your manner of reciting them. For I too bear in mind the voice, the look of absent friends and can occasionally mimic their manner for the amusement of those who have seen them, right? So uh, what happens is uh, you mimic 
other people's voice, right? Or there is an echo or a poetic echo in uh, what you write, right? Yeah. And of course, when you look at the poetry of Wordsworth and Coolidge, right? Uh, uh, the Imitations Ode and the Immortality Ode, right? These are two odes. If you study them together, right, you will find that actually the language is almost the same, right? Because these two men went out and composed or talked about what poetry they were composing, a very serious kind of engagement with poetry, right? So uh, that's uh, uh, what is being talked about. That is, uh, right, uh, so we're talking about absent friends and occasionally mimic their manner for the amusement of those who haven't seen them, right? Yeah. So, do you mimic a person, right? And we all do that. And we must remember that Wordsworth is talking about the, the language of people, right? He's talking about the language of the Scots. He goes off to Wales, right? And when he talks about the daffodils, he's actually talking about a Welsh kind of uh, encounter because uh, the daffodils uh, uh, say David, right? I think Daffy, right? Daffy and Daffodil comes from St. David, who's a patron saint of the Welsh, right? And they hold, and he holds some daffodils in his hand, right? Yeah. So uh, all those kind of journeys of Wordsworth are interesting because when we're talking about the whole idea of mimicking, right? Uh, and the idea of ventriloquism, right? Where one person uh, says something and it looks as if the voice is coming from another th person, right? That's something that is talked about in poetry, right? And the idea of mimicking is also talked about by an anthropologist called uh, uh, Desmond Morris, right? When he writes this book called The Naked Ape, right? He's talking about how animals use mimicry in their body, right? Uh, for sexual reproduction, right? Yeah. And also you have animals uh, who use mimicry to uh, get their prey and to trap their prey, right? right? And uh, human beings use mimicry to get the presence of somebody who's not present and uh, actually that's a very important kind of factor that is there for a poet who writes, right? Because if I can mimic your poetry or the rhythm of your poetry, right, then I'm doing something uh, which pay, uh, pays a great tribute to you, right? Uh, one of the examples that I can give for this is a poem by a man called W.H. Auden, who's a modern poet, right? Who writes a poem which is an elegy of a man called W. W. Uh, sorry, W. B. Yeats, right? Yeah, and it's got three parts to it, right? And uh, yeah, the the first part says it was a it was a cold day in September, and the, uh, all that kind of thing. And there was ice all around, the airports were closed, and he's a typical modernist poet, right? And the second is, he's talking about the condition of Europe, and he got some very interesting lines, yeah? Uh, some of it which are on Auden's grave, if you go to Munich, go to his grave and see it, right? In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise, right? Yeah, but that's not what I want to talk about. The third part of his poem, when we study the poem, uh, we say, well... Auden is writing this stuff and it's an elegy. How can he do that? Right? It's, talk, it's called In Memory of W.B. Yeats. Right? Look for this poem. It's a lovely poem. Right? 
Okay, and what he does in the third part is uh, it it almost sounds like something that we call doggerel. That's very cheap kind of rhyme for some people, right? Yep. But it goes this way: Earth, re Earth received the honored guest. William Yeats is laid to rest. Let the honored vessel lie empty of its purity, right? Yep. And it goes on the same thing, right? Now, if you're not a reader of Yeats, you won't be able to understand where the poem comes from. Right? Yeah? And unless you've read Yeats, right? And you've read his poem called Under Bell Bulbin, right? It's not the content of the poem, but the rhythm of the poem which Auden takes up, right? So he mimics Yeats to praise Yeats. Yeah? So mimicry can be used to make fun of somebody, right? Like you might like to mimic me and the kind of way I speak or what I speak, right? And I'll congratulate you for that, right? I don't hold it against you. And that's something that is done very often, right? You mimic a teacher, right? Or you mimic somebody who talks in a particular manner, right? Yeah? Or uh, to get into the political, uh, Lalu's mimicking of Modi, right? That's hilarious, right? And we like mimicry for all, uh, all those things also, right? Because mimicry is an important part of how we communicate, okay? Right? So that's something else that we are talking about, right? And that's what he's saying. Uh, and of course, the letter is not very systematically written, uh, as you can see, right? It's not even as systematic as Gandhi's letter, right? So, uh, of course, it's got organization, but is it systematic, right? So that's a question that we have to think about when we're talking about letters, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You may safely rest. Uh, where am I? Yeah. Uh, the boy the absent friends and occasionally mimic their manner for the amusement of those who have seen them, right? Yeah, and of course, there's a modern poet, I hope he's alive still, right? Uh, he's called Roger McGaw, right? And uh, he read a poem on the Model T, right? The Model T uh, is a car which is being phased out, right? Yeah, and what he does is he actually pays a compliment to W.H. Auden, right? When uh, Auden writes 12 songs, Auden has a line, right? Which is interesting because uh, till that line, you don't know that uh, the person who is writing about is his gay partner, right? Yeah, you find that uh, the first uh, begins with stop all the clocks cut off the telephone, uh, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, right? Yeah. Uh, drape, crepe, crepe bows round the public doves, right? And get aeroplanes to ride in the sky. I forgot in the poem, right? Yeah, all that kind of thing, right? So that's Auden's poem. And at a particular point in the poem, he says, he was my north, my south, my east, my west my morning glory and my evening rest, right? Yeah, so it's actually about his gay lover and he's writing the poem to his gay lover, right? So, uh, so that's the moment. But what Raja McGow does is, she was my north, my south, my east, my west, right? And he's talking about this car called the Model T, right? Yeah, and unless you've read Auden's uh, uh, poem, right? You won't be able to either uh, be able to get what he's doing in his poetry, that is, he's mimicking Auden, right? So Auden mimics uh, Yeats, yeah, and 
uh, Roger Mengal mimics Borden, right? Yeah, so you might find that very interesting. And the idea of mimicry as a kind of a poetic device which poets use, right? Uh, yeah, and Eliot also does that. Webster has his line, or keep, or keep the wolf far hence who's fought to men, right? Yeah, and uh, Eliot makes it, uh, or keep the dog far hence who's friend to men, right? Yeah, so unless you are a reader of literature, you won't be able to pick out the ideas of mimicry and echoes, right? Yeah, so that's something else uh, that I think uh, we need to talk about because the idea of how do we mimic people, right? Uh, your impassioned manner of recitation, I can recall at any time to mine own heart and to the ears of the bystanders, right? Yeah, so he's saying this, I, this live kind of voice, right? I reproduce and I try to recite my poetry like yours, right? And that's what uh, he's talking about. I rather wish you had left the monody of Chatterton concluding as it did abruptly, right? Yeah, so he's talking about Chatterton, right? And he says, oh, well, uh, you should have left it as it is, right? And now that's a critique, right? Uh, it had more of unity, right? Yeah, now we're talking about the unity, right? And the romantic idea is not to have unity, right? Yeah, uh, of course they have a, an organization, but when they write their poetry, they're actually uh, talking about writing free verse, uh, type, talking about freedom in writing, right? Talking about breaking the sentence structure and breaking the line structure, right? Which poets are still doing, right? Uh, you have Kamala Das, uh, who later became Kamala Suraya, right? So uh, all these kind of poets in India also have tried to do it, right? And the French poets and the English poets also have tried to uh, break the hegemony of the line, right? I think we talked about how the line is a male line and how the line comes in from the macho world of male culture, right? And the poets have tried to break the kind of linearity of the line and some of them have what you call common figuration, right? You can look it up in your M.H. Abrams, right? Uh, you have people like George Herbert, Easter Wings, etc., right? Then you have the French poets who have all these fountains, etc., right? The lines look like fountains, right? Uh, lines written in poetry, right? And people like Joyce and other French poets, right? You can read their lines backwards and forwards, right? Yeah. Right, so that's something else that uh, you might like to think about because uh, when we're talking about mimicry, we're also talking about that, right? We're talking about backwards and forwards, which we in English literature or in English language call a palindrome, right? Yeah, so you have Malayalam, right, which is backwards and forwards, you can spell it the same way, or you have the other thing which says, and there are a whole lot of them, right? Uh, the ones I can remember is Malayalam, and the other one is. Abel was I, and I saw Elba, right? So you can write it, that's a line from, supposed to be from Napoleon, right? But it's a line up and down, right? When you read it backwards and forwards, it's the same thing, right? Yep, so you can uh, look at that also, and we are looking at the idea of what poets do, right? The conclusion of your religious musings, I fear, will entitle you to the reproof of your beloved woman who wisely will not suffer 
your fancy to run riot but means you walk humbly with God right yeah so the idea of you right and the idea of your woman right your beloved woman whether it's his wife was not his wife I don't know right yeah but the idea is she would be not quite pleased with your idea of religion right and most people like an old time religion a conservative religion and that's what most people do right yeah so you bring about a change in religion and a lot of people will have a lot of problems and that's all across the world right not a new story it's been there for a long time right yeah so you have uh, this around and if you get your idea of religion and you get pantheism to a Christian woman she'll have a problem that's what he said right yeah uh, the very the very last words I exercise my young novitiate through its ministries of heart stirring song right though not new to me uh, cannot be enough admired right now you get a line which is talking very interestingly which he says I exercise my young novitiate thought in ministries of heart stirring songs right so he's talking about the new priest right yeah and that's what Wordsworth also says in his prelude right the poet is a priest right okay and here he's talking about the novitiate which is uh, a young person is put uh, into a job and that's called a novice right and where a place where you have all the novices gathered together who are trained to be priests is called a novitiate right yeah and the ministries of the priest and he's talking about a new priest right so the poet is a priest in the world that is the poet sings new songs and the song of the poet is a natural song so they're talking about nature and we go back to Shakespeare's line right uh, in King Lear the first line begins nature of the art my goddess right yep uh, yeah so that's Edmund's line yep I think so right so you might like to read it and you might like to look at the idea that <coughs> we have something called animism which the romantics believe in very strongly right and they're pantheist that means they really believe in every religion under the sun right all religions are equally right, right? not my position my position is all religions are equally wrong right yeah and especially uh, to women right yeah uh, the, the very last words I exercise my young novitiate thought in ministries of art study song though not new to me cannot be enough admired so, yeah? so he's actually praising him for his line of poetry right and that's what a poet looks for right like when we are discussing uh, a poet called R. Parthasati right who's an interesting Indian English poet uh, who writes a book called Rough Passage and I don't know if he's written another book right yeah I think he's written two books right after that he says no I'm not going to write in English anymore I'm going to write in Tamil right I think he's a Tamil right yeah so uh, what happens to him is something very interesting right he goes to England and he's a English teacher from Bombay from one of the prestigious colleges in Bombay not the decayed Indian system 
of colleges and universities of today. But if you taught in a college in Bombay uh, 50 or 60 years ago, that means uh, you knew English, right? You knew English culture. You know, knew a lot of things about how to behave in public and all sorts of things, right? Which, of course, we don't hold today, right? So our Partha Sati actually goes to England, right? And he's an English teacher in teaching in a college in Bombay, right? And many of them are called professors, right? Yeah. So what happens is he goes to a bar, right? And he asks for a matchbox. And the woman who's a waitress tells him, well, a matchbox? What is that? Right? And he looks at her with surprise perhaps, right? And she says, oh yes, I understand what you mean. You mean a box of matches? And then he comes to know, well, I'm an English teacher who doesn't know English, right? In England, a barmaid knows more English than me, right? And I don't, the English that I speak is not English, right? Yeah? And of course, he has a very interesting line. Uh, my tongue in English chains. Okay? So you might like that line. And many of us think about the lines that poets write. right? And we remember the lines uh, a poet writes. And uh, we, that's how they're remembered. So the idea is, how do you put words together? And how do you get that kind of line? And if you can get a line which, is, uh, which strikes somebody as different, original, uh, combining different ideas and giving you a new and fresh feeling of the language, then you're a poet, right? Yeah, so that's what uh, this man called Lam is doing, right? Lam is actually saying, well, you are a poet, right? The line that you've given me is great, right? And the line is, I exercise my young novitiate thought in ministries of heart-stirring song, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. To speak politely, uh, of course, what we are doing and what we are talking about is the break with official meter, though this has a meter, right? The language itself has a meter, as we already said, right? Uh, the idea is to break with the meter, right? To break with uh, rhythm, to break with meter, that's what the romantics are doing, right? How do you break this kind of oppression of form and formalist? Uh, and the form of poetry, right? Can we write, can we not write freely, right? So Wordsworth, a poet, speaks in ordinary language and he's a man talking to men, right? Yeah, and poetry is the powerful overflow of spontaneous emotion, right? Of course, they don't do it themselves, right? So that's the definition of poetry, yeah? And they're talking about lines which are fresh, in the idea of using in language. They're not the kind of stuck metaphor or stuck symbols that you use in the neoclassical poetry, right? Uh, to speak politely, they are well-turned compliment to poetry. I hasten to read Joan of Arc, right? Now he's talking about, uh, yeah, they, they actually compliment poetry, right? Yeah, they actually are saying that this is what poetry should be, right? Uh, yeah, we know what is a compliment in uh, the idea of uh, a sentence, right? Yeah, John is a mechanic, right? John and mechanic are complements of each other, right? John is a subject, so that's called a subject compliment, right? Or if you say the mechanic called John, 
we have John and the mechanic is the same person. So in English uh, grammar or English syntax, we say uh, we say that this this is the subject complement, right? Yeah. So the complement is actually uh, uh, the same thing that you say, right? I hasten to read Joan of Arc, etc. I have read your lines at the beginning of the second book. They are worth uh, worthy of Milton, right? Uh, yeah, so the note to that is Coleridge contributed some 400 lines to the second book of uh, Sadi's epic, right? Uh, that's Robert Sadi, right? Uh, yeah, they are worthy of Milton, but in my mind, yield to your religious music. Musics, right? Yeah, so he says that these are the lines that we can go back and we can actually, uh, even Milton could have written such good lines, right? Of course, Milton is known for his Latinate syntax, right? His, uh, the, the word formation, what he does is, to the English language and the poetry, he gets Latin rhythms and Latin, uh, the Latin uh, syntax or the word order, which is done in English to his Paradise Lost, etc. Right? Yeah? So, that's what he's saying. So he, he, and many people look at Milton as the best poet in English literature, right? And they look at him as higher than Shakespeare, right? Now whether that's true or not, I don't know, right? Because uh, how do we say anybody is the best, right? Yeah, I, I can't uh, buy that, right? Yeah, because they're different poets at different times and with different subjects and different backgrounds, right? So, uh, uh, but in my mind, your religious musings, I shall read the whole carefully and in some future letter, take the liberty of particularizing my opinion of it, right? Now, the question is, it's important to have people who criticize your poetry, right? Whether they say good criticism or bad criticism, right? People have this idea of constructive criticism, right? All criticism is a constructive, right? Yeah. Okay, and uh, that's one of the problems that we have perhaps from whatever is going on in our country today, right? We think that anybody criticizing is a bad idea, right? Yeah? The worst, in research we talk about your worst critic being your best friend, right? If somebody tears your kind of poetry, to, uh, your kind of uh, writing to pieces, right? That's actually your friend, right? Yeah? So that's when you're talking about a research world, but of course, uh, it, the the politicians don't uh, are not researchers, right? The politicians are practical people, right? They're just worried about coming to power again, right? Yeah, uh, right. Uh, yeah. Of what is new to me among your poems, next to the musings, that beginning of my pensive Sarah gives me most pleasure. The lines in it I just alluded to are most exquisite. Uh, they made my sister and self smile, right? So now your your interesting sister is coming up. That is Mary Lamb, right? As conveying a pleasant picture of Mrs. C. Yeah, probably Mrs. Coolridge, right? Checking your wild wanderings, which we were so fond of hearing you indulge when among us, right? Now the idea of wandering that comes up in the solitary reaper, right? That comes up in the daffodils, right? And in real life, words within Coolridge used to go on these long walks in the Lake District, 
right? And even if you go today, you have the walks, right? And you have guides to take you around because there are a lot of peat bogs. And if you get into a bog, you'll get sucked down and you'll die, right? But you can actually go, if people know the way through the bog, if you've read Sherlock Holmes, or, and if you've read The Hunchback of North, the, uh, the, uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles, sorry, yeah, Hound of the Baskervilles, right? You'll have this idea of the bog, yeah? And how in bog land you have to find a path, right? Yeah, so you have that kind of an understanding that's going on, right? And uh, he's talking about this idea of the wanderings of Wordsworth and Coolidge, right? Solitary Reaper, uh, the either uh, the poem is talking about a wandering, whether they actually went or not, I don't know, right? But the wanderings of Coolidge are right up till the gates of India. That's uh, we're talking about Kubla Khan, right? Yeah, and uh, Timur and all those kind of people, right? So they come. Uh, so all this kind of thing, the Oriental bit, is also the mental wanderings of the poet, right? Uh, yeah. It is endearing as more than anything to your good lady and your own self-reproof that follows delighted us. T is a charming poem, though throughout uh, you have well remarked the charming, admirable, exquisite are the words expressive of feeling more than covering of ideas. Right? Now they're talking about feeling and they're talking about thought, right? And the romantics are more for feeling against thought because that's what the earlier age, the neoclassical age was all about, right? Yeah, they're talking about thought and they're talking about uh, their thinking, etc. But this is talking about feeling and charming, admirable, exquisite are words expressive of feeling, right? And we talked about the mirror and the lamp, right? Where uh, M.H. Abrams actually saying that the romantics are, in their criticism, are what you call expressive, expressive, right? Yeah, they're expressive kind of people, right? The expressivists, uh, uh, expressivist uh, kind of criticism that they have, right? So, uh, expressive criticism, I think that's the word he uses, right? Uh, of feelings more than conveying uh, of ideas. Else, I might plead very well yeah, of course, I don't. I don't agree with uh, with the Lamb over here because when we're talking about imagination and we're talking about the romantics, the idea of the idea of romanticism is about uh, the ideas of imagination, the ideas of freedom, the ideas of uh, the ideas of breaking structures, right? Uh, whether it's political structures or the line structures, right? Or the form, right? Breaking with form. That's what it is, right? So, uh, uh, it's an idea, right? And romanticism is an idea, right? But he's talking about feeling and the idea of feeling against thought, right? But what is feeling but again an idea, right? So, of course, we are in a problem even today. We don't know whether mind, how much of the mind is feeling and how much of the mind is thought, right? Yeah. And uh, we have a philosopher like Jean-Paul Sartre who has got a book on uh, feeling, right? Yeah, and is talking about the mind and what is uh, what is uh, feeling and what is thought, right? So you can read that, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, which is T, I don't know, because he says T is a charming word, right? Uh, right, 